Hello there. So Sunday we introduced an idea of what is worship. And quite frankly, as you may remember, we covered a lot in there. Uh, In fact, that sermon was pretty dense. But there was still so much more that we had to leave off the table. So many powerful and insightful things that we didn't want to just leave. We wanted to present to you. So we decided to create this class, this Bible class, as an opportunity for you to learn a little bit more about this idea of what is worship. In this brief lesson, we're going to try to unpack some ways that worship can become more of a tangible reality for you. And we're going to try our best to help reframe our definitions of worship and transform our view of it. Because the reality is, all of us have, to some degree, a broken view of worship. All of us do. And until we can fix those images, until we can rewire our brain, our life will always lack the worship potential that it has. So, without further ado, let's break into our thoughts tonight by, of course, partnering with God, as we discuss partnering with God. Father, we come before you now thankful for the opportunity we have to come before you. We ask now that you send your Holy Spirit into this moment, that he can come and be the the spirit of discernment that we need. None of us are smart enough, intelligent enough, wise enough to interpret the scriptures on our own. If we try it, Lord, we'll fail. We have too many biases and contexts and lens that stop us from seeing the truth. We need you to show us the truth clearly. So spirit work in our life now to help us understand your word. Father, we ask that each word we read, each line that we study points us to Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, and by extension, the beauty of you. Help us in this moment, Lord, to worship, to partner with you in this task that we're endeavoring, and help us to leave benefited from it. We pray this in Jesus' name. So we talked about the inauguration of worship, what is worship, kind of a quick biblical overview of it. But I want to unpack two things tonight for us, hopefully quickly. See, I'm a visual learner. And until I have a picture of something in my head, it's really hard for me to fully grasp it. And so often what I uh, do is when I come to a new theological concept, when I'm studying something, I start in poetry. I start in poetry, I start in paintings, I start in pictures, because, as N.T. Wright famously says, poetry precedes theology. I have to have a picture here so I can understand here. That's the way the Holy Spirit works through me, at least. And there are two images that came out of this study, two images that I would like to share with you, two biblical portraits that are painted, that once I got them in my head, they completely revolutionized and radicalized the way I view worship. Worship stopped being this, alone. It stopped being coming here on a Sunday morning and singing songs and doing... Worship became so much more, so much greater, so much bigger. Let's start in Genesis chapter 4. The story that started worship, the story that started our sermon on Sunday. This is the first time the idea of worship is introduced. We see the creation of worship in verse 26 of chapter 4. To Seth, to a son was born, and he was named Enosh. And at that time, a beginning was made to worship in Yahweh's name. The beginning was made to worship. But before that, what inaugurated worship was actually the prayer of Cain. All the way back in verse, um, verse 13 and 14. 
The story, as we discussed on Sunday, just a quick reminder, Cain kills his brother Abel. His blood is on his hands. And he comes before the Lord, and the Lord offers him an out to repent, an out to confess, and he chooses not to. Instead, he chooses deception. Strike two. Not only did he murder, but he lied. God calls him on it and says, Cain, you can't stay here anymore. You have to leave. You have to wander the earth because you cannot stand in this familial tie with the brother you've just murdered where the ground is crying out Abel's name and your hands are soaked in his blood. You have to leave. But Cain was scared. Scared of the the wide world. Scared of where it would lead him. But more than that, his request to God is about, what if someone kills me? I'm a vagrant on the earth. His guilt was eating him alive. It was his guilt more than anything else that Cain was wrestling with. Because he was scared of the weight of the blood guilt. Scared of the the weight of the sin. And so Yahweh's response is in verse 15. It's interesting. He says, therefore, anyone who kills Cain, sevenfold it will be done unto them. And Yahweh took a mark and put it on his head. So that when someone found Cain, they would not strike him dead. The first act of worship actually ended with the hand of God touching the sinner and protecting him, alleviating the concern and the fear, even providing some measure of comfort to the guilt of Cain, the first murderer. Now, I want you, if you don't mind, close your eyes for just a second. Unless you're driving, then please, for the love of all that's good, do not close your eyes. Close your eyes for a second. And let's paint this picture of worship. I want you to picture a Middle Eastern man on his knees. I want you to picture his hands balled up in slightly opened grasp. And I want you to picture them extended to heaven. From the tops of that middle finger all the way down the back of the hand and down the arm, I want you to see blood. Blood streaking, rolling down his arm. The blood of Abel. And then in that same snapshot, that picture that's deep in your head, I want you to imagine a beautifully radiant, bright, translucent hand grabbing him, grabbing the face of this man with his hand on his cheek and his finger next to his eye. And I want you to imagine the warmth of that moment. See, to me, this picture is so stunning, it's so beautiful, and it's so transforming because to me, it's perfectly an indication of what worship is. It's me reaching up with my blood-soaked hands and God caressing my face out of his infinite love. That is the core image of worship. A murderer partnering with God. And finding peace. That picture, that image, I want you to keep in your back pocket. I want you to remember it often. I want you to meditate on it and pray on it. In fact, at the end of this this lesson, I want you to, to stop and I want you to pray to God. And I want you, before you even utter a word to God, close your eyes and have that image ingrained on the top of your head before you ever say anything to God. Filter your prayer through that picture that's playing. And let the Holy Spirit use that image to transform you. Let the Holy Spirit use that picture in your imagination to change you. 
to help you see the heart of worship. Use this image as a tool and allow God to use it as a tool to help you understand and unlock the heart of worship. The second image we didn't get to in services comes actually out of John chapter 4. I completely lied to you. It's John chapter 12. I had Genesis 4 on my mind, I guess. John chapter 12. This is the second image that helps that will help us transform our understanding of worship. In John chapter 12, we see Jesus six days before Passover with his friends in Bethany. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, his usual crew. The apostles were there as well. And they were all reclined out on a table. Uh, this is in the Middle East, so they would have been reclined on their left hand on a table that's kind of slanted down. They would have been eating with their right hand. At this point, they would have been eating bread and hors d'oeuvres, things like that. And I want you to notice where everyone in the room is. Get the picture so we can have the image, right? We need to have the image. That's really important. You have Jesus. He's an older man, about 30. He's the oldest in the room. Reclined out on his hand with a piece of bread in it. You got that? Jesus reclined with bread. Beside him, you have his good friend. Beside the place of honor, Jesus in the place of honor. Beside him on your right, you have Lazarus. The man who just a year ago, was dead. And you have him leaned, but he has nothing in his hands. In fact, he is watching transfixed Jesus. Picture that. Reclined out, eyes fixed on Christ. You have Martha. You have Martha with two plates of food in her hands, setting them on the table, directly in the center. Around the table, you have a variety of youths, the youngest being John, around 12, the oldest being Peter, probably around 19, 20. You have them all lined out by age. John on Jesus' left, Peter the farthest away from him. And you can imagine all of them at different stages of their spiritual maturity. You have some of the older kids gazing on Jesus. Like Lazarus, transfixed by his words. And maybe you have John or James, one of the younger two, with fistfuls of hands of food, about to shove it in their mouth. But behind Jesus, behind Jesus is Mary. Mary with her long brown hair down to her hips, holding in her hand this jar looking at Jesus with love in her eyes. Now, I want you to play this picture out a little bit, right? So I, I, it's like we're on an old school, the DVD days, back when people weren't streaming. You have it paused, right? This is the image that we're paused on. I want us to press play. And I want you to see in your mind's eye all the, the activity in the room happening. John and James fighting over the pieces of bread. Peter and, and Andrew talking about something. Lazarus and Jesus in a conversation. Martha freaking out as Martha always is trying to get the dinner table set and ready for the food. And then out of all of it, you hear this shattering. And the smell fills the room and completely silences it. Jesus, in shock, looks down and sees this expensive nard rolling over the, the dust-soaked feet. 
He looks down and he pulls up his robe just a little bit so it doesn't get on it. And he sees it pooling under him. Everyone's shocked. The bread drops, plates shatter as Martha in, in, in disgust, surprise, drops everything. Mary gently gets on her feet, gets on her knees, takes her long, beautiful brown hair and begins to scrub his feet. This story is worship. That picture is worship. Mary anointing Jesus as king of her life. King on high. Partnering with him in that moment in the ministry he is endeavoring to do. Claiming her loyalty to the kingship of Jesus. At an incredible price on her own. In John chapter 12 we see that it would have cost about 30 denarii. We see all this story in all four Gospels, so you can compile the facts. It would have been about 30 denarii, which in modern context is roughly about $35,000. She shattered it. Usually, nard, it would come actually from the Far East. It was a very hard commodity to get a hold of. But once you got it, it only took about a drop or two to fill a whole room. Imagine the incredible fragrance that would just concentrate in that tiny little house. Make your eyes water with the strength of that perfume. In fact, John says that the house was filled with the smell, the fragrance of the perfume. $35,000 she relinquished as an act of worship to Christ. This woman who... This woman who had a reputation, who had some struggles, as we see from the other gospel accounts. This woman who was not socially accepted. This woman gave everything to Christ. That's worship. You know, it's funny, in the Old Testament, this idea of fragrance kind of jumps off the page to me. In, in Exodus chapter 29, true sacrifice, it says it's, it's a fragrance, it's a perfume to the Lord. In Numbers chapter 15, the acts of generosity that the law demanded, that they give food to the poor and help them, that is a fragrance, a perfume to the Lord. But in Amos chapter 5 and verse 14, Amos says that God, God views the worship of the Jews at that time as a stench. True worship is a fragrance. Fake worship is a stench. True, pure, unadulterated love and partnership with God is a sweet smell in the nostrils of the Lord. And when we make it out to be something it's not, it becomes stale. They absolutely despise your festivals and get no pleasure from your stench, said the Lord. Right here we get a, an interesting dichotomy. The offering of sacrifices that were happening in Amos' day, they were still happening. The meeting in the temple, the doing all of the things that was asked of them, they were following in all the worship laws. But they were doing it with the wrong spirit, with the wrong heart. They were haughty, they were proud. It became a ritual, it became legalistic, it became confined, it no longer was worship. And God said to those people, I don't want that, that's, that's stench to me. But in this moment, 
the fragrance of that woman must have been the most pleasing aroma that ever hit God's nostrils. Because in that moment is true and unadulterated worship. Mary's delicate hands grasping this blistered, sweaty, dusty foot of a carpenter's son. Anointed in the most expensive perfume of its day with her hair tangled in between his toes. Worship. Being willing to partner with God. Sacrificing whatever it is that is holding us back and engaging with him in moments of unity and solidarity. True worship is encompassing its partnership. It's these two pictures. Now let's put this into practice, because I understand it's a little esoteric, and I understand that those images may not help you. I'm a, I'm a very strong believer in cataphatic uh, prayers. Uh, that's imagination, using ideas and pictures to help guide concrete facts. I think that's very important. But how do we use these pictures? So we have the, the bloodstained picture of Cain. We have the, the hands around the feet of Jesus uh, with the hair wrapped around it. We have that picture. How do these two pictures shape our view of worship today? Well, that's a great question. On Sunday morning, when you come in here, when you come through these doors, if you're meeting us in, in person, and you take a seat, socially distanced, you know, all that shenanigans, you take, you take your seat, right? The songs begin to play. The, right now we're using recordings, so the recordings begin to play. Where is your brain? Where is your heart? Do you have, like Cain, your hands extended to heaven? Do you feel the caress of God on your cheek? Like Mary, do you lay it all at his feet? Everything. Do you leave with him your loyalty? Are you comfortable and grateful just to hold his foot in your hand? On a Tuesday morning when you're on your way to work, in the commutes, a little more taxing than usual, you find yourself stuck in traffic, and you decide that you want to pray. Do you pray with your arms outstretched, filling your car with the aroma of worship? Do you engage in a moment-by-moment -moment worship of him in that commute, pulling him in and asking him to just be with you? Do you recline with him around the table? Do you see his face before you? Do you feel his warmth? See, worship doesn't have to be confined to this. In fact, if it is confined to this, it starts to lose its aroma, its fragrance. If it ever becomes that we have to sing these five songs and we have to do it like this and we have to do these certain things in these certain ways and all of this, it begins to lose its aroma, its fragrance, and it becomes the stench that God talked about in Amos. But true worship is a fragrance to the nostrils of the Lord. I'm going to ask you a question as we kind of conclude our time together tonight. How do you worship? How do you worship? What is worship to you? I want you to work on something. I've given you two biblical portraits, two images to hold to, to meditate on, to pray about, and I encourage you to do so. But I want you to have a third image in your head right now, an image that I can't paint for you, an image I can't create in your brain. 
an image of you worshiping. I want you to think back in your life to a moment when you felt closest to God, when you felt like you and him were partnered together so closely. And I want you to flesh out that image in your head with as much detail as you can muster. I want you to think of smells and textures and feelings. I want you to see lighting. I want you to, I want you to paint the most intense picture you can in your brain of a moment when you felt close to Christ. When you were worshiping, you were partnered with him. And after this lesson, I want you to take some time and really paint that, flesh that out. And every day this week, I want you to meditate on those three images in order, in that order. That's important. Start in Genesis. Picture Cain's hands. Then I want you to fast forward to John 12. And I want you to picture that scene. And then I want you to go to your place and think of your image. And in all three of these images, if you open your brain and open your heart to it and really spend time focusing in on them, the Holy Spirit will pull truths in all three and he will reinvigorate you for worship. Take those images with you and let those help define what is worship. Next week, this coming Sunday, we're going to be answering the question, why is worship important? Why worship? And we're going to be discussing a lot of really profound things, talking about how actually it's as much beneficial to us as it is to God. It's a partnership thing. Both of us gained from it. We're going to talk about how we reflect in worship God himself. And we're going to be challenged to be transformed in our moments of daily worship, as well as our corporate worship. But for now, take these images with you, meditate, and allow those things to drive you forward. Allow those pictures to be used by the Holy Spirit to help change you, your life, and your worship. Okay, thank you guys.